Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We praise you for another day of corporate worship. We know that you have been so wise to give us this day and the various meetings of our church to be an encouragement to us, a strength to us, a help to us. We praise you and thank you for this day and look forward to what you have in store for us today. Lord, we just continue to ask that you would bless our time studying the Old Testament, even at an overview level. We just pray that you give us a greater understanding of the Holy Scriptures and this portion of them. We pray that you would help us to see how they anticipate uh, the Lord Jesus, his person and work, and that we would be able to see how the, the whole Bible fits together a little bit better as a result of studying the Old Testament here. We pray, Father, particularly for the book of Joshua this morning, that you would open up this book to us, help us to understand it, to see uh, its teaching, and to take it to heart, Lord, that you would transform us through our study of this book. And uh, we pray, Lord, your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can kind of see where we're at here. We're, I guess, getting close to halfway through. Not quite. By the way, for those of you, the friends aren't here. This Sunday is when we're going to do a special thing for Mike and Linda. If you guys saw the church email, did you guys see that? So just a heads up that that Sunday, we're actually going to use the Sunday school hour for that. So everything will be bumped again a Sunday forward because we'll invite everyone to join us in the sanctuary for a, a larger sort of all-together thing for the Sunday school hour, which will be a sweet time, but we won't be in the Old Testament that day. Okay, so let's see. I want to start with some introductory matters with respect to the book of Joshua. Long, well, I don't know how long ago it was. I covered these in a sermon, but let me just review a few things about Joshua. First, its author. You just have to read Joshua to realize that the author is anonymous. Nowhere in the book does it tell us who the author is. You say, well, isn't it Joshua? No, the title, which again is not in the Hebrew text, but is derived from the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's the title that they put. That is, the title is refers to basically one of the main characters, not the author. I would say that it seems most likely to me, especially as I've studied through the Old Testament and You'll notice oftentimes references to even extra-biblical books that will be attributed to a seer or a prophet. And it seems likely that the author of many of these Old Testament books that remain anonymous was a prophet of some sort. In fact, it is interesting that in the Tanakh, right, the Hebrew Bible, this whole section uh, was called the Prophets. I think it, it most likely was written by, these books, these historical books were most likely written by a prophet of that time. Uh, the date, a couple things to say about this. If you even look in your text of Joshua, if you look at a text like Joshua 4.9, you can just see references like this, and there are many in the book. So it says, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So the author, whoever he was, was making note of the fact that what Joshua did back then is still in place in the time of writing. And that indicates that there was some kind of gap between the time of 
the writing of the book of Joshua and the events that were described in it so that the author could look back upon it and say that there's, it's still there to this day. And in fact, there's one particular reference that scholars of the Old Testament have noticed in Joshua 6.25, where it talks about Rahab. And in 6.25, it says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So just a little passing reference, but if you put your mind to it for a second, you realize, wait a second, that would seem to indicate that when the book was written, Rahab was still alive, which would mean that while there is a gap between the writing of the book and the events that they describe, yet that gap couldn't have been too long if Rahab really was still alive. And so when you look at it, the conquest, if, if we go with the sort of standard traditional date of the Exodus in 1446 BC, and then you calculate 40 years beyond that, would put the conquest at around 1406 BC. Remember when you're BC, the numbers go down instead of up. So Joshua would have been written probably sometime, you know, there's a gap between the events of the conquest and the writing of the book. So sometime in, in the 1300s BC is when the book of Joshua would have been written. We don't know exactly when, you know, probably the, what would you say, the, the late or early 1300s because they're counting downward, but maybe the 1380s or something like that. What about the recipients of the book? Well, we remember that um, all of the Old Testament books were part of a body of, of scripture that was given to the nation of Israel as God's old covenant people. So this is, Joshua is a is old covenant scripture given to God's old covenant people, which means the primary recipients would have been the nation of Israel. You're saying, okay, tell me something I don't know. Uh, genre, just a reminder that Joshua is one of the many books that we would describe as being primarily historical narrative. There are many different kinds of literature woven into the book of Joshua, but for the most part, it is what we call historical narrative, but not like the history that we write today, that we try to be comprehensive, we try to be unbiased, objective, in that sense. We, that's not the type of history that you have in the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament history books are selective. They only tell you certain events and not others, and that's intentional. They're selecting out certain events from history, and they're, they're not just sort of unbiased, like just recording historical events, trying not to have any agenda. No, they come with a clear agenda to communicate certain truths about God, about salvation, about humankind, about human history, and God's plan of salvation. So that's why we might call it theological history, and that's again what we have in the book of Joshua, as in the Pentateuch. Okay, so that's a little bit introductory. Just actually just go back. Is there any questions on any of this before we move forward? Okay. All right, so let's keep moving through. Um, what about Joshua in relationship to the Pentateuch? So you, you recognize that the first five books, Pentateuch means five books. First five books were all written by Moses, or at least for the most part by Moses. But now we're moving out of that. This is the first book beyond the Pentateuch, right? And so the question could be, since it was written by someone else other than Moses, after Moses, 
what's the relationship between this book and the Pentateuch, which came before it? And I would just argue that Joshua is intentionally picking up the storyline of the Pentateuch. That's clear. You know, we take that for granted because we open up our Bible and we read the first five books and the next book is Joshua. But if you step back and you realize, well, Joshua is a separate book from the Pentateuch written by a different author, you could ask the question, well, should it go after the Pentateuch? Does it fit after the Pentateuch in that way? Well, yes, I think it clearly does. The author of, the, of Joshua, whoever he was, was clearly picking up the storyline of the Pentateuch and continuing on. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 34 famously ends with Moses' death. And what is the opening line? If you look at your copy of the book of Joshua, what's the opening line? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. So, Pentateuch ends with the death of Moses. Joshua is explicitly beginning with the death of Moses. And then, so Joshua also was commissioned to succeed Moses and to lead Israel into the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy. So, for instance, if you look at Deuteronomy 31, let's just look there real quickly. You can see, uh, actually, a, a very similar text, Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8, very similar to Joshua 1, 1 through 9. It's all about the commissioning of Joshua to succeed Moses, right? The, the only difference is Moses is still alive at this point. He's recognizing the need for a leader to replace him. And so you have this, you know, sort of text describing how Joshua is going to succeed Moses. In fact, look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. The Lord your God is with you. He will not leave you, forsake you. Does that sound familiar to Joshua chapter 1? It's almost the exact language. So, you see, the book of Deuteronomy sort of ends with this anticipation that Joshua was going to replace Moses as the leader of Israel going forward after Moses' death. And that's exactly where Joshua picks up. He, it picks up with the, the death of Moses and the commissioning of Joshua. And you see the very um, similar language as in even almost the exact same language that the author of Joshua is clearly picking up from the Pentateuch and putting into this commission narrative. Not just from that text that I read you, but from other parts of Joshua as well. So, the author of Joshua, whoever he was, was clearly attempting to pick up the storyline of the book of Deuteronomy and take it from there, as it were. All right, um, And so it's right that it's placed after Deuteronomy in your Bibles, in your English Bibles. Any questions on that before we move forward? Okay, so another issue having to do with Joshua and its relationship to the Pentateuch is that in terms of the story that it tells, the entire book of Joshua actually reflects upon, continues the particular story of redemption that had begun in the Pentateuch. Okay, so not only it, literarily is it clearly picking up the scene, you know, picking up right after the end of Deuteronomy, but when you step back and you look at the book of the, the, the five books, the Pentateuch as a whole, and you read the story of redemption that is told there, it's also clear that Joshua is picking up that story of redemption and continuing it forward, all right? So, for instance, the Pentateuch describes how God would redeem his fallen human creatures, right? It starts with 
creation of mankind, then you have the fall, and then you have the promise to Adam and Eve, but then later on in chapter 12, it tells you that that promise to redeem humanity was going to be fulfilled specifically through Abraham and his descendants, right? And the Abrahamic promise that we have first in Genesis 12 then shapes the rest of the Pentateuch, doesn't it? The rest of the Pentateuch is really about God fulfilling his promise to redeem humanity through the seed of Abraham and through that Abrahamic promise. So that's the storyline of the Pentateuch. You get to, more specifically, look at that Abrahamic promise and what do you see? You see in Genesis 12, 2, that God promises to give to make Abraham into a great nation. And then there's multiple repetitions of this theme that he's going to give them him many descendants, stars like the stars of the heavens, sand of the sea. So there's the seed or descendants portion of the Abrahamic promise. There's also a blessing portion. The next verse in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. And then through in, in your seed, all the nations shall be blessed. So there's a blessing component of the Abrahamic promise. And then there's also a land promise. That's just a few verses later in chapter 12, verse 7. He, Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees, goes to the land of Canaan, and God stops him and says, See this land? I'm going to give it to your descendants as an everlasting possession, right? And then that land promise is also repeated many times. Now, particularly... I want to go to this text here. So if you would turn to Genesis 15, by the way, these are not all the repetitions of the land promise. They're just a a few of them. It's repeated again and again throughout the book of Genesis. But if you go to chapter 15, you see that he makes a covenant with Abraham to confirm his promise, his previous promise. And when you get down to uh, verses 12 through 19, let's read it. This is, this is uh, sort of what you might call the covenant ceremony. Uh, we've, he's cut a-, a series of animals in half, and then it says, And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Well, you know what that's about, right? Uh, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's the Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So do you see he promises, your descendants, this is what's going to happen, Abraham. You're going to die, you know, pretty soon, and go to sleep with your fathers. Your descendants are going to go down into a land and sojourn there for hundreds of years, 400 years. And then I'm going to bring them back to this land because right now the iniquity of the inhabitants of the land, the Amorites, has not yet reached a fullness, right? Where I'm going to bring judgment upon them. That's going to wait for 400 years. And then he says, but when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so this particular 
form, a repetition of the Abrahamic promise expands on this land component of the promise, right? Land, seed, and blessing. And it tells you that the, the broader story, that there's going to be a, a sojourning down in Egypt, that there's going to be 400 years of oppression, and then he's going to bring them back to the land, and then he's going to give them the land. Well, that really uh, brings you all the way to the book of Joshua, doesn't it? And it, uh, it brings you through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to the edge of the land and back to Joshua. Joshua is picking up that storyline, right? And telling you how God fulfilled that particular promise. Now, in fact, you could zoom out from the whole Pentateuch and you could say, okay, Genesis 12 through 8, Exodus 18, when they were brought out of Egypt, is all about how the Lord fulfilled the seed part of the promise, isn't it? It's focused on, think about it, the stories in, in the rest of Genesis are all about how God gave Abraham a son and how he caused, he protected Jacob's family and brought them down to Egypt. And then in Egypt, what happened? They multiplied so greatly that the Egyptians were like, who are these people? We got to get rid of them. We got to at least minimize them down, right? So that's all about the land promise. And then he, or sorry, the seed promise. And he brings them out of great nation, right? Ah, so God has fulfilled the the seed part. However, the land part is what's the focus next, right? Where you have numbers through Joshua is all about how the Lord fulfilled the land part of the Abrahamic promise. In fact, you get to the end of Joshua and you have that great text, Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Let's read it. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You know, it's like, how many different ways can I say that you get to the end of the book of Joshua, God has fulfilled his promise, particularly the land promise, right? So, seed is Genesis 12 through 18. Uh, land is primarily the focus of numbers through Joshua. All right? And so Joshua is picking up this storyline of how God is going to redeem humanity through the seed of Abraham. And the, the blessing part you know, that sort of awaits, right? A future, a future time when all the nations would be blessed through Abraham, through Abraham's seed. But at least these two primary aspects of the Abrahamic promise are what's being picked up in the book of Joshua. All right, any questions there about that? Okay, so let's move to an outline of the book of Joshua. This is actually how I tackled the contents of Joshua when I introduced the book in my, my very first sermon in this series. And I, but I want to use the same sort of structure here. If you were to zoom out on the book of Joshua, you see a very nice layout. So if you're, if you're looking down on Joshua from 50,000 feet, what you see is that chapters 1 through 12 are all about the conquest. The Lord enables Israel to conquer Canaan under Joshua's leadership in chapters 1 through 12. It's all about conquest. Then you move to chapters 13 through 24, the second half of the book. You notice 
it's broken almost perfectly in half, right? Chapters 1 through 12, 13 through 24. Now I say that the chapter divisions are obviously weren't in the original Hebrew text, but the way it's been broken up in chapters in terms of the English translation, it's nice. Half and half, conquest and then division. Or you might put allotment, right? The Lord leads Joshua in this section to divide up the land, up the conquered land, between the 12 tribes. And I say the conquered land because it's more than just what was conquered here. It also includes the Transjordan region as well that had already been conquered. But nevertheless, all the conquered land is sort of divided up and apportioned out to the 12 tribes. So conquest, chapters 1 through 12. Division, chapters 13 through 24. That's the, the big 50,000 foot picture of the book of Joshua. Next, a little bit more detailed picture here uh, helps you to see that in chapters 1 through 12, if we look more closely at this first half of the book, you have in, in, cha- in verses 1 through 5, the Lord leading Israel across the Jordan into Canaan under Joshua's leadership. So it's not actually until chapter 6, right, that you start the actual conquest. So if you, if you zoom in, you're like, okay, a clearer picture is that the first five chapters... By the way, it kind of fits into half again, doesn't it, right? The first five chapters is all about the Lord leading them across the Jordan uh, into the Promised Land. And then 6 through 12, the next half of that section is all about the Lord enabling them to actually conquer the land. You know, Jericho, I, Northern Canaan, Southern Canaan, or Southern Canaan, Northern Canaan. And then, if you look at the second half of the book, 13 through 24, that we headed uh, under the, put under the heading Division, You see, again, a little bit more detail. Uh, The land is actually divided up in chapters 13 through 21. This is where the Lord charges Joshua to divide up the land between the 12 tribes by casting lots. Again, a little bit of a mysterious process, but something like little sticks or something that had markings and they would be cast into the lap by the priest and how they fell was obviously determined by God and it would reveal somehow there was a way of determining what answer the lots were giving sort of like dice or something uh, and so that it was actually the Lord determining the, the portions who got what portion and that's how the land was divided up by casting lots and that was supervised by Joshua as well as others and then when you get to 22 to 24 the land's been divided up but what we have is mostly Joshua charging Israel before he dies to serve the Lord in the land that he had given them. In fact, that word serve is repeated again and again throughout the, that section, just like, just like the word divide. So I think uh, this is a little bit of a more detailed picture of the book of Joshua. A conquest, entering the land, taking the land, and then division, dividing the land, and serving the Lord in the land. And you can see there a little bit of a breakdown of the, how the land was divided up. Okay, now a little bit more detailed. So now we're you know cranking up the microscope or telescope or whatever. We're looking closer in. What do we see when we look at the book? Well, let's look at these two halves a little bit more closely. In this section that we've titled "Entering the Land" in the in the last slide, let's look at what's in it a little bit more closely. You could follow along in your Bible if you wanted, and you're flipping pages. You could see. Chapter 1 opens with this commission of Joshua 
to lead Israel to take the land as, as Moses' successor. Chapter 2 is primarily about this incident where they send spies into the land and they have this interchange with Rahab. Um, and then chapters 3 through 4 are about the crossing of the Jordan. You remember it was a miraculous event similar to the Exodus where the Lord actually parted the Jordan before them. Um, and then finally, chapter 5, they get into the land and shock of all shock, you determine, you realize that this new generation of Israelites isn't actually circumcised. They don't even have the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet God's about to fulfill the Abrahamic promise, right? And so God basically says, stop, consecrate yourselves, right? Be circumcised. And so it's sort of like a covenant renewal here, where they're this new generation of Israelites taking the sign of circumcision before embarking on the conquest. So that's the first five chapters, a little bit more detail. And then in the second section, taking the land, we described it as taking the land, chapter 6 through 12. We see a little bit more detail. Chapter 6 is the conquest of Jericho, that first city that they come to on the other side of the Jordan. Chapter 7 and 8 deal with this debacle with the city of Ai, where they go and try to attack it, but then realize that the Lord doesn't give them into their doesn't give the city into their hands, even though it's a small city, and they discover that Achan has stolen some of the devoted items from Jericho, so they punish Achan, and then the Lord gives them the city of Ai, and they conquer Ai. And then chapter nine, you have, you know, this heartbreaking you know, heart-sinking scenario where some of the inhabitants of the land trick the Israelites into making a covenant with them. So that means even though they were supposed to destroy all the inhabitants of the land, uh, at least the Gibeonites are going to be spared now because Israel swore a covenant to them foolishly. And it was because of Gibeon's trickery, but what's lacking is any kind of consultation of the Lord before they make the decision, right? And so, again, there's... There's failure mixed in here, both with Achan and then this. And then sort of the rest of the conquest, after focusing in on these two cities, the rest of the conquest is sort of packed into two chapters. They start by conquering southern Canaan, and it's a miraculous victory. You know, they they destroy armies of nations far greater than them, and it's all done by the power of God. This is where you have that famous incident, right, of the Lord making the sun stop in the sky so that Joshua could finish defeating. And then they move and they conquer northern Canaan as well. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 12, the land is largely subdued. Then you get to chapters 12 through 21, the dividing the land. And you see that if you look a little closer... Starts with the, that Transjordan region, you know, the kingdom of Sihon and Og, two of my favorite names in the Bible. Can you imagine naming your kid Og? That would be great, but maybe as a middle name or something. Benjamin Og Twombly. So you have the, the Transjordan region is first divided up between the two and a half tribes. Then move to Canaan, and that's divided up between the nine and a half tribes. The half tribe is, which one was half and half? Manasseh. Manasseh, right. And then you have the cities of refuge designated in chapter 20. And chapter 21 is all about giving the Levites their cities and pasture lands to live in. 
And then finally, the this last section that's all about Joshua charging Israel to serving to serve the Lord in the land before he dies. If you look closer, you see, first of all, you have this incident with the two and a half tribes where before they go, you know, Joshua sends them back to their territory now that the conquest is largely over. But before they go, they build this giant altar. You remember that? And the thought is, no, already they're compromising. They're 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 gonna worship God at a different altar than the one that in the in the tabernacle. But then it turns out everyone breathes a sigh of relief. No, this was actually not what you thought. It was it was actually a sign of their commitment to worshiping the Lord. So it's like, okay, the two and a half tribes are they're gonna serve the Lord across the Jordan. That's the, the theme of twenty-two. And then chapter 23, Israel is charged to serve the Lord by Joshua. He gives them a solemn charge before his death. Part of chapter 23 as well is an actual covenant renewal. Uh, We talked about this, how the covenant was made at Mount Sinai, but it was actually renewed by successive generations on multiple occasions throughout the, the rest of Israel's history. This is one of those covenant renewals. And then you have Joshua's death in chapter 24. Okay, so that's a little bit more of a closer, detailed look at the book and how it unfolds. You can sort of break it up into half and then quarters, and then this is how it fleshes out. So any questions about the book at this point? All right. I know it's kind of familiar territory to us because we we, uh, just went through it all. Okay, what about the teaching of Joshua? Well, I want to break this down into, as you see in the headings there, two prominent themes, and then four lesser themes that are uh, emerge from the teaching of the book. First, prominent theme is God's faithfulness to his promises. Okay, This is a, a huge theme in the book. The book is essentially all about how God fulfilled the land portion of the Abrahamic promise, right? I mean, you can't understand the book of Joshua without Genesis 12, 7 and all the reiterations of the land promise. That's what the whole book is about. So you remember I read that text in Genesis 21, 43, where you get to the end of Joshua and it says, the Lord God gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. And then at the end, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass, right? So the house of Israel is the seed of Abraham. Not one promise, not one word of the promise that God had made to them as Abraham's seed was left unfulfilled. But God fulfilled them in the book of Joshua, right? So when you read Joshua, you should be coming away with the fact that you know, here we are, hundreds of years later, centuries later, and God had done exactly what he said he was going to do. You know, the people themselves, probably, they were so distant from, I mean, think about our nation right now, right? We started out, I'm just reading a book by David McCullough on the Revolutionary War, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> oh, how we have forgotten, you know? Like, we can't even remember 200 years past what our Constitution even says, Right? Well, think of 400 years living in a foreign country. They, they probably didn't even remember, you know, a lot of the things that had been promised, a lot about their history, and yet God hadn't forgot. He was faithful. And this is one of the major themes, is he's, 
He's faithful to his promises. Uh, and everything that he did for Israel in the book of Joshua, you could step back, if you just read the book of Joshua, you could step back and say, why is the Lord doing this for them? You know, like, they're, they're, they've been so stubborn and rebellious. Why? Well, the answer is Genesis 12, 1 through 7, right? It's He's being faithful to his promises, right? He over and over says this to them in the Old Covenant Scriptures. Look, it's not because of you. It's for my namesake, right? So that's one thing. And we can come away with that, thinking, okay, let's think of the promises that we have and know that God is going to be faithful to those promises, and that should be a great comfort to us. Uh, But also, a major theme of the book is obviously God's judgment upon mankind for sin. So when you read you know, through the book, you're struck again and again by the way that God commanded the Israelites and they carried out the complete destruction of the Canaanites. A, a text like Joshua 6, 21, really just captures it. This is their first city that they destroy, Jericho. It says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And that language of harem in Hebrew devoted to destruction. That's repeated again and again. God had told them to wipe out all the Canaanites. And this was not just something that they did on their own, like I just said. God had already told them to do this. If you read a text like Deuteronomy 20, verse 17, and this is just one example of many, the Lord said, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Right? So, God commanded them. And there were multiple reasons for this. One of them is what he goes on to say in the next verse. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices. Right? If you leave them in the land, you're going to end up being influenced by them and you'll follow their gods. But there was also another reason. That traces all the way back to Genesis 15, 16. Do you remember what that verse said? I'm, sending your, I'm going to send your descendants down into a foreign land for 400 years and then bring you back. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So picture a cup, right, filling up. And the Lord's saying, 400 years, that cup's going to be full. And that's why I'm bringing you back. I'm going to destroy the Amorites because their iniquity will have become complete, right? That's grace. It's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? To think of your sin building up to the point God has been is patient, 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 then it reaches a, a point where God says, No more. Yeah. It's like the, the Israelites in the desert and their sin and, right. and finally they could right. leave the desert. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. People look at a text text like this and they go, God is so harsh. But if you follow the storyline of the Bible all the way through, what is actually true is that he's been so patient, right? That he has allowed mankind to live on after the fall, that he has that he waited so long before he destroyed the world with a flood, that he waited so long before he would uh, you know destroyed the the Amorites of Canaan. And and by the way, how patient is he with with us and with our with our nation, with other nations of the world, right? So you know, it's interesting. Every time there's a natural disaster, you get on the news like foolish pundits saying, you know, where's God in all this? You know, and you're like, wow. I mean, let me move out of the way. Less lightning strike because 
this is just a foretaste of what's coming. Right now, our iniquities are filling up like a glass, right? Yeah. It reminds me of what Jesus said when the people came to him and, and you know, what happened to these people that were killed by Herod, and then he mm-hmm. talks about the wall falling on them. Right. We all need to be concerned last week there, right? Yeah, they said, Jesus, you know, what about the temple uh, or the, the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed these people? Where's God in that? And what did Jesus say? Oh, I'll tell you, if you don't repent, you will also likewise perish. You know, I mean, and so we don't say that with some kind of smug reaction. But, you know, Jonathan Edwards had that famous sermon of sinners in the hands of the angry God. And he, and he talks about there, you know, you're like hanging over the fires of hell like a like a like a spider on a on a web. And what, you know, think of how easily that could break. And or he, and he'll say, so, and who's the only one holding you, keeping you from falling? You know, it's God himself, the very one you've offended. You know, <laughs> it was a very vivid way of saying, hey, like, we need to take a different perspective here about human sin and God's judgment. And Joshua certainly does that, right? Does it mean that there are difficulties that we, that we run into in our mind, wrapping our mind around it, you know, young and old, Lord, etc.? But... But when we step back and we look at the big picture, like St. Augustine said, humanity is a condemned mass. We are all uh, under condemnation and judgment in Adam. And the fact that we're still alive is the miracle, not the fact that God, that, that we, you know, that God allows his wrath to break out at times or that we suffer the effects of the curse. No, no. What is... What is surprising is the patience of God, the mercy of God, that he would let the iniquities of the Amorites reach a breaking point before he would cause his wrath to burst forth on them. And you say, well, what about the Israelites? I mean, but it was the Israelites that were commanded to wipe them out. Yeah, oftentimes the Lord uses human beings as an instrument of judgment, right? Think of the nation of Israel, how he would send the Babylonians against them, send the Assyrians against them, right? And then he would turn around and, Say, and you Assyrians did it with an evil motive, and I'm going to judge you now as well, right? So, that's not nothing surprising there. It didn't mean that the Israelites were somehow holy, holier, right, more righteous than the Canaanites necessarily. Some were, but some weren't. It was that they were God's chosen instrument of judgment. Okay, so these are two major themes in the book. Let's look at it four lesser themes. One is the importance of obedience. So obviously this is God's old covenant people, but again and again and again in the book, you see this emphasis upon the importance, let's put it this way, their success in this conquest hinged upon their obedience. In fact, going back to the first chapter where God commissions Joshua, what does he tell them? And you think, okay, what's, what's the key to success, Joshua? Here you have this epic military campaign ahead of you. What's the key to success? Well, you better pick up some good books on military strategy from the library. You better talk to some of the seasoned you know, warriors in the camp. Uh, you better send spies out to scope out the land. I mean, you've got to get ready, right? This is a, a military campaign. Well, instead, what he says is, here's your one key to success. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Don't worry about military strategy, Joshua. Here is your key. Obey the Lord. And in fact, when they didn't obey, which began in chapter 7 with Achan, right? What happened? They All of a sudden, they couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag, right? They couldn't stand before the tiny city of Ai. So obedience, the emphasis upon obedience is so important uh, throughout the book. And you get to the very end of the book and Joshua is charging them. Look, he had led them to obey God throughout his life, but now he's charging them. You must obey. And, and you can get the sense that Joshua knows <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? So he, he calls them to renew their covenant. He recognizes, though, that the hearts of the people are not obedient. And it says their obedience lasted about as long as the elders who had been part of the conquest. As soon as they died, then you have the book of Judges, which is not exactly a book about Israel's obedience to God, right? Okay, so next, another important theme, another lesser theme is the importance of trust in God, not man, right? And perhaps the most vivid illustration of this was the conquest of Jericho, where God said, you know, sharpen your swords. Is that what he said? told them? You know, here's, a, here's your military strategy. No, he said, I tell you what, this is going to set the tone for the whole conquest. You just march around, and I'm going to be at your head, you know, have them carry the Ark of the Covenant. You just march around seven times and then just yell, and I'm going to give you the whole city, right? And that was, the theme was, look, it's not by your own strength. It's by trusting in me and and obeying, showing your trust in me by following my instructions. And then the very next city, they've just conquered I, everyone's, or Jericho, everyone's on a high, and there's this littler city north and west of that, that they think, you know what, hey, just send 3,000 guys up there, we'll, we'll take that, no problem. And they can't do it, right? And so the contrast is between Joshua acting upon his own without dependence upon God, without consulting God. In fact, the text even says that, he, that they did not consult the Lord. And the two stand in contrast. You know, what is the key to success is trusting in God, not men. You think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? The classic text, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. That's a, a huge theme in the book. And, and we can take that away as well. Uh, should we prepare like the ant, the Proverbs say? Yes, we should, but not depending upon your, your own strength and wisdom, knowing that, yes, I labor and strive, but according to his power, which works mightily within me. And then a, a third lesser theme is the, just the awesome power of God. You know, God doesn't call us to trust in him for nothing, right? <laughs> you think of parting the Jordan, the Jericho incident with the walls falling down. You think of their conquest of southern Canaan, how it says the Lord sent hailstones down from heaven from, with great, of great size, and the hailstones killed more than the Israelites did, right? And then how God caused even the sun to stop in the sky. I mean, you could have whole scientific treatises about how that could be possible. But the Lord's arm is not short. And so as we trust in Him, we are to remember His almighty power that the one we're trusting in is utterly reliable, 
able to do, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, right? Exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. So you think about sin that you want to overcome, ministry that you're embarking on, uh, tasks that lay in front of you, you know, raising children, starting a new job, and you think, "Ah, I need to trust in the Lord, but He's able. He's almighty. And then finally, the last is salvation of sinners by grace through faith, right? So which chapter do you think I'm going to go to here? What figure? Give me a hint. Rahab the harlot, right? Uh, This is one of the great themes from the beginning is that you have this Canaanite woman who was herself a prostitute. Now, you can talk all about how women ended up in prostitution in that day and we, you have a, a measure of compassion upon how that might happen. So you don't just look at her the way the Pharisees did. But at the same time, like the text is emphasizing, she's a harlot for a reason, right? <laughs> she's not an upstanding moral citizen. He's saying she's kind of like, everything about her says sinner, right? And yet, she's, out of all the Canaanites, somehow has come to believe that Yahweh is real. She, I mean, the, the word Yahweh is there. She's heard about Yahweh, the God of Israel. She believes that he is going to destroy her people, and so she casts herself upon his mercy, appealing for deliverance, and the Lord saves her, right? Uh, and when you read her words in Joshua 2, 8-14, through 14, you're like, hey, she has more faith than most Israelites, right? And and the, the theme is that God delivered her because of her faith. And she was such a sinner, so it's by grace. So this theme of salvation from God's judgment for sin through simple faith and trust in Yahweh and his promises is also emerges in the book. And this is the, the writer of Hebrews, you know, views her that way. He says of Rahab and Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the prostitute. You know, notice how everyone's mentioning that. She's a prostitute, right? Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. She was saved from God's judgment, even though she was a sinner. Why? Well, because she kind of cleaned her act up and, you know, turned things around in her life and began to merit God's grace. No, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, right? By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish. (laughs) She showed her faith by her actions. So, these are some of the themes, the teaching of, uh, of Joshua. Any questions on this before we look at the last slide? Yeah. Rahab, I've heard sermons about how she hung a scarlet cord out her window, that it was scarlet, Right. Was pointing to the cross and right. You, I always wonder about that because yeah, there it is kind of a beautiful picture that it was a scarlet cord, but it seems like that's one of the things people do when they. Yeah, I think that's a classic example of what we might call allegorization, like yeah. drawing parallels between okay, you know, the, a scarlet thread and blood and the cross that really aren't justified by the text itself, right? So there's a, is there a parallel between King David and King Jesus? Yes, right? Both sons of David, etc. 
Is there a parallel between the high priest of the old covenant and the high priest? Yes. Of the, is there even a parallel between someone like Joshua and Jesus? Or sorry, uh, yeah, Joshua. Well, yeah, there is. I think there's organic connections there in the storyline of Scripture, but between the the cord and the cross, probably not. You know. Yeah. They went on and on about it. Right. I think that it was scarlet because that way they could see it. Right, and it was hung out the window so that they could see it from the walls. I don't think is there anything more than that. Although it does connect to faith, right? Because she showed her faith by putting it out, and I think that's probably the better lesson that we learn. You know, in other words, she wasn't a woman of good intentions. You know, like repent and believe in Jesus, and you'll be saved. Okay, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Well, I'll do it, and I never get to it. She was a woman who said, okay, I'm going to put this cord out, right? <laughs> she was, it was a sign of her faith, an evidence of her faith, you know? I think that's a better way of understanding it than that kind of more allegorical interpretation. She risked quite a bit hiding those spies. Oh, yeah, well, that's... If she had been found, <laughs> that would have been it. Right. When you think about, when you go in depth into Rahab, you start realizing how profound it was only by the grace of God because she had done what she did. I mean, she risked her own life. She betrayed her own people, etc., etc. Pretty amazing. Okay, one more slide here. I do want to address the issue of typology when it comes to this book. And this would be more of like, how does the book of Joshua relate to the New Testament Well, of course, we've reflected a number of themes, right, that teach us things as God's new covenant people. But where does, how does Joshua fit into the storyline of Scripture? And, you know, there's no doubt that the Old Testament is spoken of in the New Testament as having established various patterns, right? Whether it's the sacrificial system or the priesthood or the Davidic kings and and on and on, that they established these patterns that prefigured and pointed forward to things that were coming in the person and work of Christ. And I do think that the New Testament does this, recognizes that there is a typological pattern established in the book of Joshua, which prefigured and pointed forward to the consummation of God's redemption of his new covenant people through Jesus Christ. Because if you think about it, when you have the the storyline of the Pentateuch, right, and you have the you have this picture of redemption, which is in under the old covenant, what was the great redemptive act? The Exodus. And then you have the wilderness wandering, and then you have the conquest. And there's a sense in which you have this the beginning of Israel's redemption and the consummation of Israel's redemption, right? And that that uh, the New Testament recognizes how that pattern, Exodus, wilderness wandering, promised land, establishes a pattern that in some ways reflects, prefigures, and points forward to our own redemption, right? What's our great redemptive event? The second Exodus, right? It actually occurred during the Passover, which celebrated the first Exodus. It's the cross. Christ is our Passover lamb. It's like the Exodus, but greater. And then you also have like 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul will talk about, hey, don't be like the Israelites who who didn't make it 
because they fell into idolatry or they, they disobeyed God in the desert. And he even points out, hey, remember the generation that went through the Red Sea and ate the manna, they perished in the desert. And there's, he draws a parallel between passing through the Red Sea and baptism and eating the manna and eating the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10. He seems to draw a parallel. The point being, hey, don't just trust in the fact that you're baptized and, Lord's, and you're taking the Lord's Supper. Israel committed idolatry and fell in the desert. Don't fall, commit idolatry <laughs> and thereby disqualify yourself, right? Examine yourselves, he says at the end of 1 Corinthians. Take, you know, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So there's a, there's a connection between the wilderness wandering period and our own Christian life, right? And then where is it all headed? <laughs> to our, the consummation, right? To the time when we will cross over the Jordan into our final rest. And so this is, this is the pattern, I think, is established here. You have Joshua uh, in the book of Joshua. He destroys the Canaanites from the land as a temporal judgment for their sin. We already talked about that. And then he gives the land of Canaan to Israel as a place of earthly rest, right? This is described, for instance, let's just look at one text. Turn to Joshua 1, 13 through 15. It says, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing for you a place of rest, and I will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before the brothers, your brothers, and shall help them until the Lord gives you gives rest to your brothers as He has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Now, you see that the land of Canaan is described there as a place of rest. That's actually very common in the Old Testament. There's I could point you to a number of passages where entering into Canaan is described as you know, inheriting a place of rest, experiencing rest. But there's one particular passage where that sort of ramps it up, and that's Psalm 95, where the psalmist is reflecting upon the wilderness wandering and how the Exodus generation didn't make it into the promised land because of their rebellion. And look at verse 10, he says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Very interesting, isn't it? He's he's viewing the Israelites entering into the promised land as entering into not just a place of rest, but a place where they would experience something of God's rest, right? And remember, this is what the writer of Hebrews is picking up on and recognizing, ah, There's something here, right? Something that prefigures and points forward to our own experience as Christians, right? And so this is where I'm I'm arguing that there's a pattern established. Now, the fact that, you know, they inherited, they conquered the land, but it didn't, it wasn't everything they were supposed to have, right? (laughs) They had an initial experience of rest and then immediately disobeyed, and then you have this cycle of oppression, All of that is supposed to lead you to, okay, this was good, but it's not what we're really looking for, you know? Well, this points us to something else, something that a a greater experience of what the Israelites had in this pattern, right? That along comes another man named Joshua. That's what Jesus is, the name in Hebrew is Joshua. And 
he is going to destroy not just the Canaanites from the land of Canaan, but he's going to destroy, he's going to judge the world. And he's going to remove all fallen humanity apart from Christ out of the world as a final judgment for their sin. You know, 2 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, or 2 Thessalonians 1, he talks about the Lord will come with flaming fire, dealing out retribution, right? Uh, 2 Peter 3 describes that final judgment as comparable to the flood, except instead of water, it's fire, right? And then, what does he do? He's going to give a renewed earth. He's going to make all things new. And he's going to give the renewed earth to his people as a place of final eschatological rest. Now, I realize that depending on your eschatological views, you might stick things in between that final state and the second coming. I myself look at 2 Peter 3, I say, no, it seems as if the second coming is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. But regardless, all right, it's not a huge deal. But the writer of Hebrews is picking up on the fact that there is this Sabbath rest that remains. <laughs> and in Hebrews 11, he talks about how believers throughout history have been, they died without receiving what was promised. And they're looking for it. They're looking for that heavenly country, that better country, and the city without foundations whose builder is God, not man. So when in Hebrews 3, when he's talking about, hey, Keep persevering in faith so that you might not fall short like the Israelites did, but you might enter into that rest. Well, do you see the parallels? <laughs> he says, Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, why would the psalmist in Psalm 95 speak of another day? You know, So all, everything, the writer of Hebrews seems to be anticipating this better country, which I believe is a new creation that we're all longing for. And he's saying, just like the Israelites entering into Canaan was entering into God's rest, so this is the the full and final Sabbath rest, entering into the heavenly country, the new creation. And when you get there, then this will be, you know, like Revelation 21 and 22, right? You're going to have rest. And And those who are in hell, the lake of fire, it says, they shall have no rest, neither day nor night, right? So I'm just arguing that I think Joshua, like so much in the Old Covenant, provides a pattern that finds, that anticipates and prefigures something greater. That we too have a Joshua, but he's a greater Joshua. He's accomplished a greater redemption. He's leading us through this wilderness world right now toward an ultimate rest, a greater rest. The heavenly country, the eternal promised land. Of God's people. Do you remember 2 Peter 3.13? Let me just, let's just end on this. 2 Peter 3. If you look at verse 12, he says, We're waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we, the people of God, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That, that's really what we're talking about here. That's our entering into God's rest in a full and final way. That's our heavenly homeland, our eternal promised land. And the judgment of the Canaanites prefigured and pointed forward to the judgment of this world in which all the wicked will be removed and cast into the lake of fire. But God's people will inherit the earth, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, right?
Okay, well, we're going to leave it there because I'm out of time again. But let's, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Feel free to come and talk with me after. Father, we thank you for our time in Joshua. We thank you for just considering its teaching and walking through its contents and reflecting upon how it anticipated the person and work of Christ. And we pray that this would just help us to understand the Bible better and that we would also learn from the book of Joshua in ways that would have a, a lasting impact upon our life, especially that we would appreciate who you are, your character, your faithfulness, your holiness, your judgment, that we would learn to obey you, that we would learn to rely upon you, that we would trust in you for our salvation, and that we would that we would learn to glory in our greater Joshua who is leading us into that final Sabbath rest in the heavenly country. And we pray that you would help us to persevere in faith through the trials of this age, that we might not fall short of entering that rest. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.